Heavenly Father, we come before you because we need your help to understand your word. We thank you so much for it, and we recognize the gift and the treasure that it is, and we want to be equipped to rightly understand, rightly divide your word. We ask that your spirit would be with us, that you would show us your grace, give us enlightenment through your spirit to rightly live in a way that's pleasing in your sight, that our living would be anchored and founded only on your words. We thank you that you are the word of life, that you entered in, and you provided a way so that we could have eternal life with you forever. We ask, Lord, that you would bless our time this morning and that you would be honored and glorified in it. And pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As we've been studying through how to study the Bible together, we've been pressing in deeper and deeper to try to rightly understand God's word. And we've repeated through several um, scripture passages the truths that we find from scripture. And 2 Timothy 3.16 is a verse that we've referenced frequently that clearly states that all scripture is inspired by God. It is God breathed, it is the very words of God. The psalmist would declare in Psalm 119, 160, he sings to God, the entirety of your word is truth. In Proverbs 30, verse five, the author wisely asserts that every word of God proves true. And in Jesus' prayer in John 17, 17, he prayed to the Father saying, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Over and over again in scripture, what we find is that it is God's word and it is true. And we know that this is something that's true. We believe it and we come to God's word to understand what he has said about the world, about us, about who he is, so that we can live rightly. But there's a temptation and a fall and a, and a failure that we always are, are tempted with, and it started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Back in the garden, Satan said, did God really say? Did God really say that? And the questioning of God's word has continued in our own hearts all the way till today. But it's interesting when you compare Jesus' response and his temptation and in the desert, in Matthew 4, verse 4, Jesus answered the temptation by saying, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is life for those who have eternal life. It is the very words of God. For those who have been given eternal life, we must live by the word. And if we are to understand God's truth rightly, We must seek to find the author's message through the context that the author communicated. And we've continually repeated this theme and this idea that to understand God's revelation of who he is, of his world, we must understand the context in which the authors were communicating. So one of those crucial components that we've been really emphasizing in our study over the last several weeks has been the idea of biblical genres within scripture. And genre is referred to as different categories or types of literature. And biblical genre is the way of really classifying something according to its literary style. Biblical genres can be identified through the structure and the literary techniques that are used within a passage or a book. 
And each genre follows a general set of rules that aid the reader in understanding the author's intended communication. And we've been looking through uh, three primary genres, big headers that you find throughout all of Scripture. We've been looking at narrative, which is a text that communicates truths by telling a story. And we looked at setting and characters and plot in that section. And we also looked last week at poetry, which is a text that communicates truths through a vivid imagery of word pictures, parallelism, and figures of speech. And today we're going to be looking at discourse, which is a text that communicates truths through a logical sequence of thought. That is going to be the focus of our topic today. And each of these has a distinction. When you think through these topics, narrative tells a story from start to finish. It's communicating through story. And poetry is rather this sort of imagery and word picture, but discourse really communicates truth through this realm of reasoning and logic. It's building an argument to help you understand from top to bottom what the main idea is. And in biblical discourse, these passages seek to connect ideas through logical relationships. Instead of events or images, the ideas are plainly stated and highlighted in this form of communication. And we, as, as students of God's word, we, we often tend to read and memorize and rehearse these passages frequently because the truths, excuse me, are so readily on the surface for us. The authors of discourse openly state their point within the text in contrast to the other genres that tend to illustrate them through other literary tools. So today we're going to be diving into this topic of biblical discourse. So what are some, some primary features that biblical discourse carries. Well, we're gonna talk through two main points, two features of biblical discourse. We're gonna talk through the specifics that what we should be looking for in this observation step when we identify a genre as biblical discourse, but we're also gonna be looking at the structure. What sort of structural pieces should we be looking for as we read through this type of genre? So first, we're gonna look at some of the specifics. Biblical discourse can be found in, in many of the writings throughout God's word. It can be seen in the legal commandments, in the prophets, and even in extended speeches of characters within a narrative. But most prominently, we find biblical discourse within the New Testament epistles. The epistles are the letters to the newly established churches after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And these consist of the books of the Bible from Romans all the way through Jude. And they make up 21 of the 27 books within the New Testament. We tend to kind of mistakenly think that these letters are identical to our own letters today. We write our letters informally, very personally, and they're quickly written, sometimes even last minute. If you think of a birthday card, it's kind of the last thing you get to, and you're trying to write something, seal it up, and put it in with the gift. That's oftentimes how we write our letters, but these were different. They were were extensive and expensive in their writing. It was costly for them to actually write a letter down and to send it across the known world at that time. And it was something that they took lots of time to methodically articulate and compose these letters. It wasn't just the rough draft that they sealed and sent out. It was something that they mulled over and thought over and even had discussion. When you see co-authors at the beginning of a letter, it's because there was conversation about this topic and how to address the needs of the church that they were writing to. And there's really three primary things that we want to identify in these epistle writings of discourse. One is going to be authority. They were written with authority, and you see this at the beginning of several of these letters. Galatians 1.1, 1, 1, 
The author, Paul, writes, saying, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Ephesians 1.1, Paul would also say that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's how he's starting his letters. And, and Peter would do the same in 2 Peter 1.1. He says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. These letters that they were writing to the churches were meant to be authoritative. They were supposed to be a substitute due to their inability to be present with the church in person, and they were supposed to be an authority that would address the issues that were present within the church. But not only were they um, an authority in these letters that was present, that's how they opened these letters, but they were also meant to be read aloud to the entire church community. Revelation 1.3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Colossians 4.16, Paul would also mention, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from the Laodiceans. So there's supposed to be this public allowed reading of these letters within the whole church, and they even were supposed to share it with other churches. Paul would mention in 1 Thessalonians 5.27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. This was a public and corporate reading assignment. Also, in even the individual letters that are, that are titled to an, a specific person, there's even this communication of, of, and this implication that it's supposed to be read not just by an individual, but by the whole church. You see this in the letter of Philemon. He opens the letter saying, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Acrippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So it's even the individual letters had this aspect to them that they expected it to be the community of believers that were reading aloud and receiving these letters. So the whole church was actually to hear these letters read aloud. And that's helpful for us in just understanding the specifics as we come to study that this was a corporate idea, that this was an authoritative idea, but even more specifically, we need to understand the situation. The situational piece is really important for us as students of God's word who weren't the original recipients, but who these letters are actually also for as God's children. So these letters were situational, or there was an occasion or an intent or a reason that these letters were written to the original audience, and they sought to address issues as well as give pertinent encouragements. The epistles were written to meet the practical needs of those that were receiving the letter. And sometimes it was to even clarify a concern amongst the church. For example, in Thessalonica, there was some, some clarity that needed in regards to the return of Christ. There was confusion. They wanted to clarify that doctrinal issue. Or they wanted to address a doctrinal issue with Colossae about the preeminence and the deity of Christ. Or some letters even wanted to confront ungodly behavior in believers, such as James did in his letter. But these letters were not exhaustive, systematic theologies. They were writing to apply theology in the personal lives and the specific situations that the churches were facing at that time. They were specific. There was a situation that was going on, and they wanted to address it with God's truth. And because of this, it's important that we not conclude too much from only one letter. Let me give you an example. 
Paul would write the book of Galatians with an emphasis on the freedom that we have in Christ, freedom from the old Judea law. And Paul would write in the book of 1 Corinthians stressing their call, rather, to obedience in Christ. But neither letter by itself represents an exhaustive topical teaching on freedom or obedience. Rather, Paul was applying the necessary doctrinal medicine to the ailments plaguing that church at the moment. The church in Galatia was falling into legalism, which is trying to um, receive God's favor through obedience to uh, a law. And they were seeking to merit his favor by obeying God's law. They needed to remember that their freedom in Christ is not something that ought to return them to bondage. Rather, the church in Corinth had misused their freedom to spend it on their own pleasures. They were approving of immorality, and they needed to remember that their call was to holiness and obedience as those who have been made alive in Christ. Both these these letters are an example of a tailored, intentional, written truth to identify specific situations at the time. And we need to see them as unified and true together, and we need to look into the details to make sure we're rightly articulating the truths how the author intended them to be understood. Sometimes this is referred to as listening to half of a phone call. When you're reading one letter and not having the response, you're able to see why were they addressing certain issues? Why are they speaking so much on this topic? Well, it's likely there was an issue going on with the church that they were talking to. And so we need to make sure we understand they're addressing something specifically. This isn't just a a systematic theology book that's grabbing all these passages of Scripture, which is helpful, but it's not how the letters were initially written, and we want to understand the author and the audience, which is really what these um, point us to. These authority piece is a specific aspect in uh, discourse study of identifying the author. What sort of authority did they speak with? And then the community is really understanding the audience, which we've looked at before in Bible study. Not only do we need to know the author, we need to know the audience. What were, who is it that they were writing to? And the situation is the purpose. To say, what, with what purpose were they writing this letter? Why were they writing this letter? And so it's more important that, that we get this big framework picture to say, yes, when we come into a topic and identify biblical discourse, we're still looking to answer questions like who, what, why, how. We're answering those questions, but when we know what genre we're in, we're looking for these specific details of what is the authority that, with which the author is addressing this audience? Who is the audience, and what are the issues that are going on at that time? Why does Paul write to Corinth about these doctrinal truths that were really necessary at that moment? So understanding the situation, the audience, and the author is important for us as we come to address any sort of biblical discourse because that lets us know why is this argument building in this way with this specific situation. So we also want to look at not just the specifics and having those those big questions, but we also want to look at the structure. What are some tools that we have when we come to biblical discourse that we should be specifically looking for in this genre? Well, in the epistles specifically, they are written in a similar way to our current letters in the sense that there's always an introduction, a body, and a conclusion. And in the introduction of these letters, there is often information regarding the main idea that the author is wanting to address. So a lot of times we skip over the Paul and Timothy and here's the audience, and we just jump into like the prayer part of the epistle. But often there's nuggets of truth in there. Why is it that Paul mentions his apostleship, or why does he call him a, himself a servant? 
How does he identify the audience? Does he call them saints? Is there a greeting at all? In the letter of Galatians, he doesn't even include a, a, a positive sort of prayer, and that really even brings in the tone with which he's addressing that letter at the church of Galatia. So understanding how to identify in the introduction, what are some ideas that are present even in the, the tone or the tempo or the, the um, adjectives that are used in the introduction is really important. Understanding the name of the writer, the recipients, the greeting, and the prayer that's often included in introduction is helpful as we're studying through these um, discourses, these epistles in the New Testament. But there's also information that's included in the body. In the body, not only is the main idea presented before it, but then it is explained. It's meant to be this explanation of these truths that have already been seated in the introduction. In the introduction, they're seeking to um, persuade, or in the body, rather, they're seeking to persuade, they're seeking to rebuke and exhort, they're seeking to encourage, they're seeking to persuade one another towards these biblical truths. And there's often what you find is this structure piece of there's teaching and then there's a response. A lot of times when you study out the book of Ephesians, it's explained that way. There's this hinge between chapter 3 and chapter 4 where there's this doctrinal teaching and then Paul transitions rather to say, I'm going to exhort you to live in a way according to these truths. And there's this clear structure in Paul's mind of we need to understand these truths about who God is so that we will live in a way that's pleasing in his sight. And so recognizing that helps us as a structure piece to say, how is he building his argument? How is he seeking to persuade? What is the case that he is making in these letters that he's writing in the specific situations of the church? But in the conclusion, we also sometimes will skip over the personal salutations or we'll skip over the travel remarks. But oftentimes, those conclusions contain in them the main idea applied. And in the second half of the letter, especially, you'll find that when the words finally come up. They're saying finally, and then they're wanting to really hammer home, what is it that I've been talking about this whole time? Why have I been building up these, these cases and these arguments? And at the end, you'll see salutations in their, in their ending. You'll see benedictions or doxologies which are praises to God. You'll see prayer requests that are mentioned. You'll see commendations of coworkers, or you'll even find some final instructions on how they are to live. And it's important for us to say, why did they say these things at the end? It's not just a random tidbit at the end. P.S., don't forget to turn the oven on before dinner. It's not just a last minute, I wanted to throw something in there, but they're, they're seeking to methodically build a case, and the end is really important for us to understand how it connects to the whole. So, not all elements will appear in every letter, but knowing the structure helps you identify when something is missing, and why even it may be missing. But knowing the general pattern will help you to understand the flow of thought that the author intended within biblical discourse. Another key idea that's important for us to look for in the structure of um, studying biblical discourse, and really it's, it's relevant in all the genres, but it's very prevalent within biblical discourse, is this idea of repetition. Repetition is simply um, repeating something so that there's an emphasis on it for us to really not miss it. And in narrative, you'll find a word that's repeated maybe five or six times over four chapters, but you need to read a, a bigger section to see that word kind of pop up. 
Whereas in biblical discourse, if they're talking about a topic, they'll mention a word eight times within four verses. And if you miss that repeated word, you're going to miss the author's main focus of the argument that they're seeking to build. And so within repeated words, we're going to look at specific words, phrases, and patterns. So for an example, in Romans 8, there's a high concentration of the word flesh and spirit. Paul is making a case in Romans chapter 8, and if you looked just at a word count from the letter entirely, over 50% of the word of flesh and spirit is used just in chapter 8. He's, he's, he's ramrodding this idea over and over and comparing and contrasting them with high concentration. And for us to really have an interpretive um, understanding of what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8, we're going to need to zoom in and say he's repeating these words for a reason. And I, if I'm trying to identify his argument, need to identify what are the repeated words. Sometimes there's repeated phrases. For example, in Hebrews chapter 11, if we were to look at that chapter and simply say there's a, there's a long list and a chronological list even of a timeline of the servants of God in the Old Testament. And so we could identify that as a timeline and a, a recapitulation of history. But if you miss the phrase by faith, you miss what the author of Hebrews is seeking to build in his argument to say that all of these historical true narratives are really saying this was all the same sort of salvation, even in the Old Testament, that it was always by faith that they trusted in the promises of God. And so again, looking for rep repetition not only in words and phrases, but also looking for repeated patterns. And I want you to turn your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 4 with me. Turn to Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 7. And just seek if we can understand really, not even to get to the interpretive step, but really these tools that we're looking at in biblical genre is in the first step of this Bible study method we've been talking through of observation. We're just looking at this step to observe what is it that the author is saying, how is it that they're communicating. And if you look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, I'm going to read this aloud if you look along in your Bibles with me. Paul would write saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. As we come to this text, it's important that we look for repeated words. We want to look for repeated phrases, but we also want to look to say, is there a pattern in which Paul is using as he builds this argument? And one of the things that should jump out is, is sort of extreme words or repeated ideas as well. So one would be that pops out in this text is the word always along with the word anything. There's sort of this extreme statement. So he starts out by saying, rejoice in the Lord always. There's this absolute command that's given. And then later, there's another absolute command, but it's in the negative. He says, do not be anxious about anything. So there's an absolute statements that are, that are commands that we are to follow. And then following the absolute command, there's actually a statement that says, let your something be known to someone. And after the do not be anxious about anything, there's also a pattern that says, let your something be known to someone. And so there's another pattern that's popping up here to say there's an absolute command. There's a display of what this command should look like in our lives, that it's made known to others. 
And then also it's followed by a comment or a statement, a truth about who God is. It says the Lord is at hand, and then he concludes on the the next argument to say the peace of God will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus, who in this letter he declares to be the Lord. And so there's this, this parallel sort of thought train that Paul goes through, and then he goes through and repeats it again. And so for us, that helps us to identify this structure so that we can see, okay, he's paralleling some of these ideas. So I would go back and I would say, what is this absolute command in the first statement where he says to do this always? Well, he says that I'm to rejoice in the Lord. And I would contrast that with, he says, do not be anxious. So Paul, in his mind, is, is, has this re- repeated sort of logical thought where he says a command, a display, and a truth about God. And I should say, how is he laying these side by side? Maybe not juxtaposed in the text, but in his argument, they're parallel. And so rejoicing in anxiety ought to be something that I see in contrast to one another that helps us understand the argument that Paul's making. And then we look at the next step, that I'm supposed to let my reasonableness be known to everyone. And in contrast, he says, let your requests be made known to God. So there's this idea that there's a different audience that's displaying these truths that are supposed to transform my life, that I'm supposed to actually be a visible, rejoicing servant of Christ to everyone around me, and that that shows up in the way that I treat others. And that makes sense because Paul right before here is actually addressing some strife and some conflict within the church. And so that helps me to understand how it connects with the stuff, the, the, stuff, the, the passage before, but also connects in this reasoning that he's trying to build a case for in our rejoicing, in our trusting in God, in our, in our humble submitting to God's will by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So not only is it known to, to everyone, our reasonableness, but our requests, our dependency, our prayers should be made known to God. That instead of being anxious and worrisome, that the action we should take is not just to look outside of ourselves toward other people around us and how we should treat them. It's not just an action horizontally, but there's an action vertically for us to let our requests be made known to God. And beyond that, in the last step, you see this, this contrast and this comparison between the Lord being at hand and the peace of God in, that's found to guard us in Christ Jesus. And I think recognizing here that what's important is the Lord's presence and the Lord's peace is something that is protective for us, something that we ought to run to, something that we ought to depend on, and then pursuing those things is going to be the way in which we actually obey these absolute commands. It gives us a pathway to walk in obedience to God, and it shows that pathway is, as always, dependent on him in total. So I think for us to identify not just words, not even just phrases that are identical, but ideas and patterns of logic to say there's actually some reason with which Paul is building his argument, and I want to see the ways in which these are connected throughout the text, and that contrast helps me to understand what is it that Paul is meaning to articulate to his original audience to exhort, encourage these believers and us as well. So beyond um, looking for repeated words, phrases, and even patterns, we also want to look directly at logical relationships. We want to see the logic relationships within these biblical texts of discourse. We want to look for logical connector words, and this is going to be necessary for us as we study biblical discourse. Understanding the relationship between these phrases and sentences and paragraphs, and even the larger sections within a book, 
will allow you to know what the author was intending to communicate. It's a sort of verification that I'm not wrong here because this argument connects with what was before and what's after, and it makes sense in a flow of thought. It's not these random statements or, or comments, but it's actually connected, and it flows with what the author was saying and is going to say. So understanding these logical connecting words is really helpful for us, and I wanted to give um, a few examples of them. Um, for personal study, this is a great thing to dive deeper into to just understand how does language work? How is it that we communicate? We do this instinctively, and I think sometimes we don't necessarily diagnose it, but when you have miscommunication, you can tell right away we're using words differently, and I thought this was a logical relationship in the way that somebody said something, and there's misunderstanding that we can have just with language itself, and so it's important for us as we come to study God's Word to understand these connections. So the first one I was going to mention is a condition and result. A condition and result is a logical relationship. This is where a condition is expressed in a text and then the result is given. Oftentimes, key words are the words if and then. You'll find these in your study through the letters. If this, then that. And it's an if-then statement. Sometimes it's a, a therefore. He's, he's referring in the word therefore to what was stated before and he's wanting to point to a result that should come because of that condition. An example of this would be in 2 Corinthians 5.17 where Paul writes, Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And then he explains what that means. He says, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But this is an if-then relationship. If someone is in Christ, then he is a new creation. This is the result if that is the case, that that condition is true. These are truths that help us understand the connection that Paul's making in that brief argument. But not only would there be condition and result, we'd want to look at contrast. This is where there are two or more things that are mentioned for the purpose of highlighting their difference. Words that you'll find in the text of discourse is the words like although, but, however, rather, or yet. Those are key words as you're reading through. Even these little words helps us to identify there's a contrast here. The author is wanting to communicate, and I need to see the disparity, the difference between these two Um, ideas that are mentioned. An example of this would be Ephesians 2.19. Paul would write saying, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. But is a helpful contrasting word that says you're not this, but this is what you are. And he's showing this large gap to say there ought to be a big difference. There ought to be a big difference. And that's an argument that he's presenting for the student of God's word, for the audience that he was writing to. Another one would be explanation, and this is common throughout discourse, is they'll state an idea that has been presented, and they'll follow it up by clarification. They'll say um, a statement, and then they'll say, this is what it means. We saw this earlier in the 2 Corinthians 5.17. He said, if you're in Christ, then you are a new creation. And then he explains it. The next sentence is an explanation of this truth that he just argued for, He's saying that um, if that is true, the truth that I'm mentioning that you are a new creation is that the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. He's explaining the idea that's presented previously. So explanation is helpful for us in identifying, and words for that would be like the word for or that is. Those are phrases or words that help us to understand he's actually explaining the truth that he presented beforehand. There's another one in these logical relations, which would be either identified as a series or a progression. 
And these are typically a list of logically related ideas that are either um, equal to one another, they're all the same, but they're both together for impact, or they actually build on each other. And there's an actual intentional uh, sequence or progression with which it builds. And there's words like the word and, but, also, first, last, and next. Those are words that we ought to be looking for in discourse to understand the argument that's being presented. An example of a progression list would be in Romans 8, verse 30. Paul would say, and those whom he has predestined, he has also called. And those whom he has called, he has also justified. And those whom he has justified, he has also glorified. If we were to look at this text and say, well, there's a list of things that God is doing, but they're all just equal actions. They're not really connected to one another. We would misinterpret the author's original intent. There's a progression, and it's identified by his repeated words. He's saying that this happens, so also this. And then he repeats this one and connects it to this. So this isn't something we could put in a different order. And he intentionally wrote it in a way so that we wouldn't put it in a different order. We wouldn't disconnect these truths, but we would see that this is a a golden chain of salvation, that God has predestined in the past what he will ultimately accomplish. There's no disconnect in these, these accomplishments of God and how he brings about salvation. And that's helpful for us in studying the argument because if, if we don't see things correctly as a progression that's connected or if we misidentify a series of things as, as something that's, that's not a series or something that is um, simply an arbitrary list, we'll fall into misunderstanding what the author was seeking to communicate in their logical argument. There's also words that help us identify the purpose the purpose of a statement that was made. So purpose would be identified by an explanation of the intent of a stated action or idea. Some key words for purpose would be in order that, for, because, so that, thus, or even the word therefore. An example of this would be Hebrews thirteen twelve. The author writes saying, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The argument is tied up in that phrase in order to, to show that there was a purpose in Jesus' action that he was aiming toward in the future. Purpose intends to draw out for us as a reader to understand the argument is there's this future purpose that it was aiming at. But also there's the relationship of reason. So to understand reason, it's really the basis for a statement. This is also referred to a, a ground. It's, it's the ground or the, the grass in which it, an argument stands. It's a foundational piece. So the reason is a basis for a statement that was made. And there'll be similar phrases like because or for this reason or therefore. An example of this would be 2 Corinthians 5.14 where Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. He gives a because statement that says this is the grounds in which the previous statement is true. It's a reason that we can know that the first statement is true. And so understanding these logical relationships is helpful and, uh, for us as students of God's word to understand how these words are used. But if, if you were paying attention with some of those key words, it can be hard sometimes because for is a word that's used all the time and sometimes it's different logical connections. And so that's why it's really important to say, if I'm thinking that this for is a purpose for, or a reason for, or an explanation for, I need to make sure that I'm understanding the flow of the author and can look at it and prove it from the text. Prove from the text that this is really the way that the author intended to connect these phrases and ideas that were present. 
So understanding logical relationships is really important in studying God's word and just becoming more familiar even with our own language. This has been translated for us to understand, but growing in even an English understanding of your Bibles will richly develop and grow your love for God's word, your understanding of who God is, and the arguments in scripture that are presented to to be for our doctrine, for reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. So beyond logical relationships, though, I would say one of the key aspects to understanding biblical discourse is verbs. We really need to zoom in and understand the verbs that are present in these texts. Finding what a primary action is in a biblical discourse is really the driving flow of thought and is key to understanding the author's main point and theme that they're talking about. When you look at the verbs of a text in scripture that's biblical discourse especially, you want to identify, is this a past verb? Is it a present verb or is it a future verb? Is it something that is passive or something that is active? Is it something that's done to me or something that I am called to do? And understanding the verbs in a biblical discourse helps you to identify what is the main theme that the author is seeking to communicate. So looking for action words, right? Action words in a text and to say, If this action word was missing from the argument, it would all fall apart. That's a great question. When you're reading through a text and you're like, there's so much going on here, I really don't understand what's kind of the main idea that the author's getting at. But when you look at a text and you say, if this verb wasn't here, the rest of it would kind of be muddied water. It, it, It would just kind of be all these different ideas. But this seems to be the central thing that he then has all these complimentary statements, either phrases of with prepositions or, or other verbs that kind of support this, additional, this, this initial verb that's mentioned. And that helps us as students of God's word when we're looking and trying to look at the details to understand what are the verbs that were used. Why was the tense chose that way? And why is it that this is an action that I'm called to or something that's done to me and how does that impact my understanding of the argument that the authors of scripture are writing This will be extremely helpful in in really studying God's word as a whole, but especially in biblical discourse. And as you um, study down in these details, let me encourage you to always remember to continually think in terms of the bigger picture. You're aiming to see how the individual tree is made up within the larger forest. You don't want to get losing the fo- you don't want to lose the forest inside of the tree, but you also don't want to lose the trees inside of the forest. And so always seeking to dive down in the details and to look up and zoom up and say what is the context in which this argument is being made? What's the context and the surrounding passages that the author was writing about? You want to see how the single argument or point that the author states fits within the main point of the entire letter that they wrote. Biblical discourse presents really a network of ideas that are related through logical connecting words to communicate God's truth. And our goal is to really observe, interpret, and apply those truths in everyday life for the glory of God. I would remind us just 2 Timothy 2.15 is really like a key Bible study text in understanding why is it that I should have zeal and desire and passion to understand God's word as a whole? And why is it that we dive in and even try to equip the saints to do Bible study on their own, to really dive into God's word to understand? He says uh, in 2 Timothy 2.15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And I hope that as you study in God's word to understand who God is, to understand our own sin and our need for repentance, our need for a Savior in Jesus Christ, 
that you will be cultivating your heart a love and a passion for what God has said, that your, your life would not be anchored to what others have told you, but rather what God has said. And I think there's a big difference. When I think about even um, if you, for example, um, I told my kids the other day that we're going we're gonna to go get ice cream. And I told my oldest daughter, hey, we're going to go out and get ice cream together. And she runs and tells the other kids. And they're just so excited because they heard the news from, a, from one of their, their, other, their sister that, hey, we're getting ice cream tonight. And they're elated. Like there's, there's a clear response to that truth that they heard from their oldest sister that they're going to go get ice cream. But a lot of times what my youngers will do is they'll come run to dad. They'll come run to dad and say, dad, are we really going to go get ice cream tonight? And guess what the response is? It's like 10 times what the initial response was from another child, right? They wanted to go to the source and they wanted to verify. And the, the elation and excitement and the thanks that pours out is so much more because they know from the source this is going to happen. This is true. And I want you guys to get this. More than ice cream is God's word, okay? I really want you to get it because when you are going through trials and difficulty, it's really easy to question what so-and-so told you about God's word. It's really easy to question what you hear from a pulpit on Sunday morning. Is that really true? But what will stabilize you, what will allow you to not be tossed to and fro with the, the, all the philosophy, all the other stuff that this world presents, is when you know what God has said for yourself. That will anchor you to God's words directly. And you won't have to question. You will say, I know what I believe. And I am persuaded that God is able to keep what he's committed unto me until that day, as Paul said. And that's our desire for you as children who love their Lord and Savior, who love their Father, to say, I know what God has said. There is no doubt. I will not be shaken because I know his words are true. I hope this cultivates in your heart a, a desire to study and know for yourself what God has said. That there would be humility in our hearts to say, I may not understand this perfectly, but I do want to be convinced as much as possible what I see in God's word to be true. And that this was, would strive in ourselves a fervency that would desire to know God more, to love God more as our Lord and Savior. And that our knowledge of God would be anchored to his word, that it would be illuminated by his spirit, and that we would drive would ask God by his grace to transform our lives by his power for his glory. So I hope that this has been an encouragement for you guys. We have one more lesson that we'll wrap up this study with next week. Pastor J.D. is going to close us up by really understanding what are some Bible study fallacies? What are some ways that we do this wrong? What are some errors that we can make as we come to study God's word that we need to be aware of to make sure that we're not falling into a ditch? So I hope that you'll come back as we wrap up this study on how to study the Bible, and that you'll be encouraged to love God more by knowing exactly what he has said for us to know about himself. With that, you'll be dismissed, and we'll come back at 1030.